What are some of the conservation challenges in the most extreme and remote habitats on Earth? The deep ocean is the largest inhabited space on Earth, accounting for over 95% of the area on this planet which is available to support life. 60% of Earth is covered by water more than a mile deep. At this level, all light from the sun has vanished, leaving only bioluminescent species and bacteria to produce what little light remains. As the weight of the water above accumulates, the pressure builds to the extent that no human could survive at these depths. It was once thought that no life at all could exist in these dark and crushing extremes, required as they are to survive extreme cold, almost total darkness and great pressure. But modern advances in deep sea submersibles and image capturing technologies have allowed for the discovery of an enormous repository of biological life. Fibre optics using LED lights can aid monitoring, whilst remote operated vehicles and increasingly manned submersibles have gradually increased our knowledge of the creatures that thrive in this underwater realm. Not only can science learn much from studying the adaptations that allow these so-called extremophiles to thrive, but it's becoming increasingly clear that deep sea biodiversity supports much life at the surface and beyond. Climatically, the life in the deep oceans may play an even more crucial role with deep sea biodiversity functioning as an important carbon store. Antarctica, meanwhile, is well known for its much-loved charismatic species such as penguins, but in fact it supports an enormous scope of seabirds that aren't as often in the public eye. The threats to these important predator species, such as albatrosses and white-chinned petrels, are compounding. It perhaps says a lot that whilst climate change, the topic of our previous episode, remains a crucial existential threat to all of the world's biodiversity, it's not always the most pressing to many Antarctic seabirds. For them, it is increasingly the fishing industry, with the dangers of being caught in marine paraphernalia and bycatch prompting a rapid decline in the populations that once thrived. With deep ocean environments being earmarked for seabed mining and trawler fishing, and illegal exploitation of the Antarctic Ocean being on the increase, we ask if the current policy frameworks in place are doing enough to protect these fragile environments. And what role can scientists and conservationists play in bumping these issues higher up the international policy agenda? Hi, I'm Robert Doubleday, host of CSAP's Science and Policy podcast. On this week's episode of our series on science and policy for Antarctica, space and the deep ocean, we're exploring conservation efforts in Antarctica and the deep oceans. You've just heard from Alice Millington, a PhD student and policy intern here at the Centre for Science and Policy. Throughout today's episode, we are joined by marine biologist and author Dr Helen Scales and Dr Lucy Quinn. Dr Quinn presently works as a marine ornithologist for Nature Scott, but previously worked for the British Antarctic Survey on Bird Island, where she was stationed for two and a half years. Turning first to you, Lucy, what are the main conservation threats facing seabirds in Antarctica? I guess there's there's three main conservation threats, I would say. So the first one, the most pervasive one is bycatch. So this is incidental mortality of birds on fishing lines. And it can be in industrial pelagic or demersal long lines, trawls, artisanal fisheries. And this has had a really big effect on some albatross and petrel populations down in the Southern Ocean. It can be unevenly distributed. It can differ depending if uh, if it's males or females following the boats, if it's a young bird, old bird. So yeah, bycatch remains the main threat to many species down there. And I would say then the second one 
would be climate change, of course. So this can have multiple effects down there. It can cause a mismatch in timings of prey items. It can change the prey distribution, the abundance, the quality. So we know that ocean warming can impact upon krill and that's the basis for the whole southern ocean food chain. So we know that there are going to be implications for all, all the, the subsequent animals up the food chain really and the food web. And of course, for those species that rely on sea ice as well, you know, the penguins, um, emperor penguins, for example, need sea ice that remains solid for most of the year. So as that is melting, that's obviously going to have an implication because their breeding habitat has then disappeared. And with climate change, you also get changes in wind patterns affecting potentially the ability to forage and things like this. So yeah, there's going to be sort of huge scale uh, implications of climate change. And I would say the third one then as sort of my last of the big three threats um, would be invasive species actually. So this particularly um, relates to particularly in sub-Antarctica, you can get species that could can directly predate on the seabirds. So for example, rats, or you can get species that can, may change the nesting habitat for the birds as well. So one of the successful campaigns, an example of this is at South Georgia, they had this huge campaign to eradicate brown rats. And that has been, you know, just, uh, it's, it, we're going to really have to wait and see if this has had a really positive effect, particularly for those burrow nesting species that the rats uh, would go after. So yeah, invasive species would be kind of the third one. As you know, there's lots of other threats I could talk about, you know, pollution and um, things like this. But I think in terms of seabirds, bycatch remains the, the, the biggest threat down there in the Southern Ocean. And so, so let's take the bycatch threat which you've singled out as particularly significant do you have a sense of you know are things getting worse are they getting better do you have a sense of the 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 direction that this threat is going in yeah so i think for in terms of bycatch there there are definitely policy and agreements international agreements that are in place to try to help prevent this so for example, the Agreement on the Conservation of Albatrosses and Petrels, ACAP. This is an international agreement which really has tried to develop a strategy um, to help with many different uh, threats uh, to albatrosses and petrels, but it includes bycatch as a kind of looking at mitigation methods. So effectively, there, there are certainly things that can be done. So you can have scarers on the fishing vessels, you can change the, the line settings um, to try to um, sink quicker but the main problem is it's just there's some kind of unregulated fishing so um, and there's a huge global uh, responsibility different countries lots of these issues are in the high seas area and because it's such a wide-ranging species you know that they these these species can travel thousands of miles crossing lots of different political borders um so actually you know there are things in place you know birdlife international has been very instrumental in this and british antarctic survey as well have been working together with other scientists to really communicate with the fishermen and see if they can put in mitigation methods what one of the interesting technology um, advances that has happened is just very recently there's been a project that has put satellite tags on wandering albatrosses and on these tags there's a sensor that can detect radar emissions and this can detect radar emissions from ships so all vessels have to have radar for safety and operational reasons and effectively from this you can then look at the proximity of the bird and the vessel you know assessing the conservation implications of bycatch um, really 
requires you to look at this spatial temple overlap in fisheries and birds. But what I should say is not all kind of bad news. There, there are, you know, there's, there's proof that this can really work. So the South Georgia government, for example, in their waters, they have vastly, vastly reduced basically negligible bycatch now because they've implemented these measures. So it is possible this is this is a threat that we can really deal with, but it's going to require international cooperation and implementation and enforcement. There's a lot more to go on this, yeah. but so you've talked about, I mean, you know, in a way that's positive because, you know, we know from what you're saying that there are measures that can be taken to, to really reduce that threat from bycatch. And you've talked about some of the the complexity in terms of you know the different jurisdictions the, the uh, and, and questions of enforcement as well as as kind of commitments but f- from the point of view of, of monitoring bird populations can can you see effects negative or positive effects from measures when you look at bird populations as a whole or is it quite difficult to disentangle the different kinds of threats um, and and you know positive measures that are being taken yeah it is actually very difficult to disentangle these effects because there's other threats you know as I mentioned you know climate change or, or food supply changes or maybe threats at their terrestrial environment as well seeing the relative contributions that these threats have to their population declines for some of these species uh, does take yeah a lot of time we do we do know that's part of the reason why we really need to get a better handling on the levels of bycatch that is actually occurring so that you know that would require for example ob- more um, observers on board fishing vessels and things like this you know white-chinned petrels are one of the species that we know is probably the worst species in the world for in terms of the number that are found um, by caught so you know we know that there's certain species that are very much more susceptible to this um, we would still say for albatrosses and petrels bycatch is, is the main threat but we, d- we don't know population consequences just yet as yeah. uh, you know how long it's going to take in order to recover once we put, uh, you know, hopefully once measures are put in place on fishing vessels to, to help prevent this. And, and what, I mean, in your experience, have, have you seen a, a growing kind of global public concern in questions of kind of conservation in Antarctica or or has there always been this, you know, sense of, of Antarctica as a special place that need, needs protection? How, how do you gauge kind of public engagement with the sorts of questions you're interested in as a scientist? I think, you know, in terms of the iconic seabird and, you know, seal species down in Antarctica, it's probably quite lucky in that communicating the science that British Antarctic Survey does is inherently interesting to the public, I think. And we've had, you know, nature documentaries and the Blue Planet 2 effect obviously really helped. You know, the public were really engaged with that. Obviously, penguins are kind of easy to um, have in the media because everyone loves a penguin story. Um, But of course, there's, yeah, it, it's you know it's yeah keep keeping them engaged with enigmatic species but I guess the point is to try to help the public understand what the main threats are so for example um with the plastic pollution story that was a huge um story and it was really well received it was very well presented by Blue Planet and it uh, it kind of caused a shift in public perception on what we should be doing with single-use plastic and I think that's all really positive but I think you know, as I mentioned, you know, the main threat of being bycatch or climate change as well affects, I think that is harder to communicate to the public uh, in terms of, in terms of kind of, I guess, understanding the relative importance. So um, yes, of course, it's important to try to reduce marine litter. That is absolutely important to do that. But what would make a massive difference to these populations is if bycatch was reduced to negligible amounts. That 
would help these populations recover from the declines that the majority of these species are in currently. Great. And that that brings us nicely to, to Helen Scales and, you know, the, the work you've done about, you know, make, making the deep oceans sort of engaging and accessible to wider audiences. And perhaps you could talk a little bit about the, the journey that led you to, to your current book, The Brilliant Abyss. Thanks. Well, I think coming to write that book, I mean, I was... Um... My background in marine biology was generally focused on the shallower seas. That's where I did my PhD. That's where I spent many years working in issues of wildlife trading and and conservation from that perspective. But um, uh, coming around to sort of my work as an author, the um, the deep just started really calling out to me, uh, and for two reasons, for two really strong reasons. Firstly, um, I. T- I feel very strongly, very passionately that we are in a golden era of deep sea exploration and science. And, you know, the amount of knowledge that we're getting out of the deep now is just extraordinary in terms of what lives there, in terms of why it matters, um, why those ecosystems may be hidden and out of sight, but they're crucially important for so many other aspects of life on Earth and the healthy functioning of our oceans and the planet as a whole. So there was that kind of aspect to it. And the fact that, you know, just every week, it seems some new extraordinary life form is discovered in the deep. And it's no exaggeration to say we really are stretching our understanding of what life is on this planet by uh, exploring the deep ocean. Um, So there was that side of it. And then just the, for me, what I felt was a real visceral response um, every time I heard about some essentially the new impacts, especially that are coming into the deep sea in terms of the things that humans are doing or planning to do in this realm and feeling almost just kind of sick every time I heard about you know new plans for mining the deep seabed, new plans for potentially fishing um, the extraordinarily abundant but incredibly important fish in the twilight zone, so a, a down to around a thousand meters down. So for me, it was a kind of coming together of those things. It was like, hey guys, you know, this is a really exciting place. I think everyone should and and will be excited to hear about the kind of discoveries and new kind of frontier of, of scientific understanding combined with this deepening of humanity's impacts, which, um, you know, kind of really just drove the whole book forwards, I guess. And, and so it's very interesting to hear hear that um, in, in, in early episodes in this series, we, we have talked a little bit about the prospect of mining in in the deep oceans and the complexities and and, and challenges and and concerns around that but but not so much about deep ocean fishing or tw- fishing of the twilight zone so perhaps i mean just to put give people a sense of you know how real a threat is that um, if it goes ahead you know do we have a sense of of how fragile those ecosystems are yeah so i mean again this is something that isn't really being done yet at a scale as same as with deep sea mining and i would say probably the deep sea mining plans are possibly a little bit more advanced than this idea of twilight zone fishing. Um, But really it stems from, again, um, the kind of the understanding and the exploration of of that realm and and discovering that there is this enormous abundance of little fish, um, lantern fish, bristle mouths, um, various little creatures. They look kind of like sardines, that sort of size, except um, with big eyes and lights down their bodies. These are bioluminescent fish, as as are pretty much all of the things that live in the deep ocean, like 75% of stuff in the open water is bioluminescent. So that's just kind of normal down there in these dark waters. But um, they are incredibly abundant. I mean, estimates are that they are, you know, almost certainly the most abundant vertebrates on the planet. We're talking trillions upon trillions. But the question is exactly how many trillions, and that is somewhere one of the indications as to why this could be a problem. There was a study a couple of years ago which involved echolocation sort of sonar studies to try and estimate the biomass of organisms um, occupying these deep waters. And that came up with, well, you know, prior to that, it was thought there was about um, a, a gigaton 
try and imagine that. I don't know how to put that really into numbers, but a gigaton of these animals is what was thought to exist in these open waters. And this new study said, well, that could be true, but also, you know, the estimates are that it could be up to you know, 10 gigatons or even 20. So there was suddenly this idea that maybe there's even more, even more of these organisms um, than we originally thought. So that in itself is obviously fascinating in terms of the ecology and the biology. And it links to, I think, uh, which I'll mention in a minute, which is potentially the, the real issues that could be surrounding if this fishing opened up. But of course, as soon as you hear that number, the fishing industries were like, ooh, well, that's, uh, um, as you might put, as they might put it, an underdeveloped resource, um, assuming that the oceans exist for nothing more than humanity's uh, exploitation. And, you know, this is something to be used. What can we do with it? Can we catch it? Can we make something out of it? Um, well, the problem is that these little fish aren't particularly palatable, so it's not going to end up on anybody's plates. We're not going to be feeding the hungry masses with these fish, but they could be ground down into fish meal and fish oil. So we we know that this is a big issue for other so-called reduction fisheries for things like sardines and anchovies to provide uh, fish meal for fish farming, for cattle feed, for livestock and so on. So that could be where this is going or even nutraceuticals production of omega-3 pills, those sorts of things, um, that that could be a high enough price because this is not going to be cheap fishing. This is going to be industrial, very large scale yeah. out in the high seas. It's going to cost a lot to operate the kind of enormous trawl nets that they're thinking of using. But that is all based on this potentially, Not we're still not sure. You have a sense of, of what the kind of the regulatory environment is <clears throat> i mean if, yeah. if 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 a company registered in a country that is happy to see this fishing go ahead if if a company kind of invests in the technology and feels that it can make money from it is there anything to stop um, not really at the moment no i mean this is the thing most of this is happening in the high seas and this is something that's i'm sure you must have touched on this uh, in terms of these new uh, potential new united nations high seas treaty um essentially is what, what's being negotiated at the moment in areas beyond national jurisdiction if that comes into play, we'll see. I mean, that could be that we'll get some advance on that this year. How much that will increase a kind of legally binding mechanism that could apply to fisheries, we'll see. But that is some glimmer of hope that at least there would be some kind of global organisation in terms of monitoring and managing these kinds of fisheries. But otherwise, really, there isn't any oversight in that sense at all. So yeah, really is up to any countries who decide they want to put this, they want to develop this kind of technologies, then there's pretty much nothing stopping them, I would say. So... Yeah, maybe that will change. We'll see. We'll see what happens. But it's certainly something that's on various people's minds. There's various kind of test fisheries. I know Norway's very interested. They've given out some test licenses. So, you know, people are starting to kind of dip, dip their nets, if you like, into this issue of could the Twilight Zone provide this new source of basically of money and finding a way of selling those fish is the question um, that is still open. What type of impacts might this be causing? The thing yeah. is, I mean, this is open water trawling. So we're not talking about the kind of seabed impacts that something like um, trawling seamounts has and continues to have. So that's another issue of deep sea fishing, which is slightly different. It's, you know, it's gear that's in contact with the seabed and that is impacting and has impacted really long lived, really delicate ecosystems where you've got these corals that live for thousands of years um, that get in the way when you want to catch the fish that kind of live around them. So that's, that is different. This open water fishing wouldn't have that impact. But I mean, bycatch is certainly an potential for this. We've been talking about this in Antarctica, but if we're putting down these enormous great big nets into open waters, there's no, there's no, it's, it's, it's a no-brainer to think that other things are going to get caught in those nets just besides the little fish. Because one thing is they're food for lots of other organisms. That's an important reason they exist. Well, the important role they play in the, in the food web is that they really are kind of at the bottom. These are plankton feeders pushing energy into the rest of the open ocean food web. So, 
sharks, fish, um, cetaceans, probably even seabirds, these fish also migrate to the surface at night. So that's where they're feeding. And so they're incredibly important for those reasons. But then I think even more, and the big question we haven't answered yet is how important these are for the climate. So we, we are getting in a sense that these little fish um, in the twilight zone are drawing carbon down into the deep away from the atmosphere. And if the scale of that again, is being studied. We don't know for sure uh, how that varies um, globally, but it could be in enormous numbers. So if we cut off that connection from the surface to the deep, again, we kind of could be playing with things that we at the moment don't fully understand and possibly just really, well, almost certainly need to leave alone. So you've got a climate aspect as well as an ecological impact that this fishing could have. One of the the, the sort of starting points for this mini series was really an assumption that, you know, over the recent decade or so, Technologies are enabling humans to explore and perhaps exploit places like the deep ocean as never before. And one of the assumptions we have is that we actually have until recently known very little about the life of the deep oceans. Is is that true? I mean, how do you have any way of sort of expressing the extent of our knowledge of, of the deep oceans in general, life of the deep oceans. Is it true to think of it as a, as a sort of unexplored space full of things that are yet to be kind of discovered? Or, or is that really not quite the case? And we actually have a better idea, perhaps not, you know, the absolute numbers, perhaps obviously details of species that we don't yet know, but we've got a sort of pretty good map of the, the overall system. Can you give us a sense of how we should think about human knowledge of the deep oceans? It's a really good question because I think you you do encounter this um this story that's often told of, you know, oh, we know more about the we know more about the moon, we know we've only explored 10% of the ocean. There are various numbers that are out there. And how to actually pin that down is very difficult because we're talking about different sorts of scales and different levels of intensity of knowledge. But what I would say is I think almost a combination of what you've just said, I think is true. I mean, yes, by its sheer enormous size and its variability, it's not a kind of constant sort of homogenous space, but the deep ocean in open open pelagic waters as well as along the seabed is is just huge. I mean, it's half of the surface of the planet is the seabed that underlies waters deeper than 200 metres, which is the kind of general definition of the deep sea. So half of the surface area of the earth is is deep. Um, And then something like, you know, include all of the water above it, um, average depth of around four kilometres, maximum of around 11. Um, You know, multiply that all up and we've got the single biggest living space, something like 95% of the biosphere of this planet is the deep ocean. So it's huge. Um, But we do know increasingly extraordinary things about the deeps. And I think uh, for me, I think that's um, one thing I'm also trying to do in the book is to shift people's minds towards, you know, it's not just this big blank empty canvas. Um, You know, people used to think it was empty because people think nothing did live down there. Of course, we know that's true now that that plenty does. But, but, you know, we, we do have a good idea of a lot of the stuff, especially particular ecosystems um, that are interesting and important, things like hydrothermal vents. We're learning more about um, different places in the deep. But because it's so big, there's always going to be more to find out. You know, we're never going to get to the ends of the deep deep ocean. I mean, I can't remember the exact numbers. I put them, pulled them together for the book. I think it was something like, I estimated there's around about 500 deep sea biologists. It's also not a particularly big field, specifically the biology part. Of course, we've got um, chemists and engineers and physicists and all sorts of other people too. But um, but strictly the biologists looking at the life of the deep, maybe about 500 full-time deep sea biologists. So if we divided the whole space up between them, they'd have something like 150 million square cubic kilometers 
kilometers each. So, you know, they've got a big task on their hands. Um, so I think it's a balance. I really do. I think it's a balance between saying we, we know a lot and we know increasingly that the deep is diverse, that it is abundant with life, that that life has impacts on the other parts of the ocean, like these lanternfish, which travel up and down the, the water column, grabbing carbon in the food and dragging it down into the deep and and, and um, excreting carbon into areas where it's not going to come back up to the surface, things like that. Um, so we know how diverse and important it is, but um, there are still going to be things to be discovered. And I think the crucial questions we haven't got good answers to yet is what impacts industrialising the deep it's going to have on all of those things. That, I think, is where we really need to know more. That's very interesting. I mean, a final set of questions, perhaps to you, Helen and, and Lucy, is what, what do you think about the relationship between science and kind of action as it were and i'm thinking having li listened to you helen of, of something that a, a fisheries scientist said to me about sort of they characterized the second half of the 20th century in terms of fishery science was knowing with ever greater precision the decline of fish populations and you know that looking back on it they felt that was not really a great way of summing up you know several decades of, of human ingenuity in, in science what do you feel helen first then lucy can connect the, the science of better describing and understanding biological systems and, and then human impacts or sort of concern for those spaces. The thing I find that's really fascinating and, and perhaps, like, I think it's a, I was going to say unique to the deep, but actually I think maybe there's, I don't know, Lucy might think this too, but I think there's some really strong parallels to be drawn in Antarctica too, in the sense that the scientists who work in the deep ocean, a lot of them don't actually go there. A lot of this is remotely done. Um, but anyway, they, they're the ones who are looking and seeing and understanding what's there. But they are the primary advocates for these places because nobody lives there. Nobody lives in the deep. And equally, no one lives in Antarctica, not permanently. Um, the scientists are the ones who do more or less. So they really are um, this group of people who are who are pushing the knowledge of what's there, some of them pushing the knowledge of of the impacts that humans are having, and um, and they really are the people who are there saying, "Hey guys, you know, you should know about this. This is exciting. This is potentially a threat." You know, there aren't. You know, of course, there are other groups, there are other NGOs who are raising these issues, but in terms of like a primary group of advocates, these are scientists who you know. They're the ones who go. They're the ones who see this. So they're the ones who come back and bring the stories about what they see and what they find and what they're noticing and the changes they're seeing. So I think they play an incredibly important role, particularly in the deep. And I would say in Antarctica too. I don't know, Lucy, what do you think? Yeah, I would. I mean, I, I do think that with the Antarctic top predators that I've had the privilege of studying down there, um, I would say that they really reflect kind of the health of our ocean ecosystem down there as well. You know, they're indicator species, they're sentinels for the ocean's health as well. And I think that's a way of looking at it in terms of connecting it to people. I mean, I think connecting people to nature in general, you know, should be a primary goal for many scientists now, um, not just in these ex more extreme environments, but even in our own oceans and our own land as well is, is kind of getting people to connect with nature. And I think with the sort of technological advances that there has been, you know, for example, now we can, you know, survey albatross. Um, they've been testing out 
from space, you know, where they've been counting albatross colonies from space. They've been looking at um, penguin guano and seeing different colonies that they they didn't know were there. Of course, this, uh, you know, I think the main thing to point out as well is that it's it's really crucial that there is a kind of a scientific presence there because it's only through you know, on the ground work, you can really ground truth some of the technological advances that enables a wider scale approach. You do still need these really key field sites, um, you know, like uh, Bird Island, to to continue on these long term data sets. We've been so lucky in Antarctica to have these incredible long term data sets, and you know, I hope that the deep ocean will, you know, now that more research has been going on, because it's only through really understanding it through time that you then get a sense of which threat is more prevalent in which area, which one do we need to concentrate our efforts on. Um, and that I think is, you know, yeah, key is that, you know, we, we still we still need the research, um, but obviously we're moving towards trying to become more carbon neutral and also trying to, you know, effectively get the most out of the funding that is available as well. So some of these survey techniques will be less cost, for example, than trying to have a ship going around all the different colonies, for example. Um, so, yeah, and, and I think, as I say, I think the way that we can present it to, to people with these more extreme environments is that they're, they, they might be remote, but, you know, they, they still have implications for the rest of our world. You know, the, the ocean currents are still coming through. It, it's all connected. It's not just completely hidden. And I think what Helen was saying as well, but, you know, sharing these images and sharing the new videos and sharing, you know, everything. I think people will be interested in that. And I suppose it's then translating this into legislation uh, for protection and translating it into, you know, uh, yeah, regulation and agreements putting into place to put appropriate protection in for these incredible environments. We're running out of time now, but are there any other final connections between the deep oceans and Antarctica that you'd want to mention before we finish up? There's one thing that I think um, Antarctica is really leading the way and has been in terms of trying to protect um, efforts to protect remote and um, relatively untouched parts of our planet um, that I really hope might be a model for the deep ocean as well, which is the Antarctic Treaty. Um, I mean, it, it's um, an issue that's really topical because it's coming up to its 60th anniversary in June. So um, so this is coming around and it's a time to, I think, celebrate that this thing happened, that 60 years ago, countries too came together and um, basically said that, that Antarctica is for scientific purposes and for peaceful purposes, and and that still stands today. And, and what a bold and wonderful um, ambition that is to say to this enormous, potentially lucrative, potentially valuable part of the planet that some people might sort of rub their fingers and say, you know, what can we do with this? And yet we got together and decided, no, let's set it aside and let the scientists study it and see what's there. You know, and I would just... I would love to see a similar model being put in place for the deep ocean. And why not? Um, why couldn't we do that? Why couldn't we tell a different story um, than the one we've kept telling forever and ever, which is, um, you know, exploration and exploitation go hand in hand. And that's the only way it can be. Um, mm -hmm. You find a new resource, you open it up, you exploit it, you move on to the next one. Why can't we change that story? And I just think Antarctica is an example of how that story did change once. <laughs> and could we do it again? So I just, um, you know, I think that's something to be celebrated and maybe just open our minds to thinking differently about these places on the planet that, you, as, as you mentioned, Rob, they're, they're special. They could be set aside. And there are good reasons why 
Antarctica, why polar regions and the deep sea are incredibly sensitive. They're like the, they really are the canaries in the coal mine of these places on our planet that are going to get really badly damaged by human activities and climate change. Um, so they need looking after. What is key for that is international collaboration and cooperation as well, and engaging in industry as well as the scientists. And um, I think I think that's also key to what will hopefully be protection for for these environments. Is yeah, working with many different stakeholders and across different political divides as well. Well, that's great. I mean, I think that that's fantastic. So I would just say a huge thank you to you both for, for, for joining us. What you've said is so interesting. You know, the, the role of the scientist is is much more than to, to study the, the species that if you're a biologist you're interested in, but also to think about the narratives that are going to, you know, connect that knowledge to people in ways that will, you know, be interesting and and uh, as you say, sort of create connections and 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 create the kind of the the, the relationships perhaps that that we may need to foster if we're going to, you know, thrive together. So yeah, really fantastic. Thank you both very much. Thank you for listening. We're back again next week with the next episode in the series. In the meantime, you can learn more about. Dr. Scale's work by checking out her own podcast, Catch Our Drift. If you've enjoyed listening to our show, please do spread the word. We'd appreciate it if you shared an episode with a friend or rated us on your favourite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening. CSAP's Science and Policy podcast is a production of the Centre for Science and Policy at the University of Cambridge. The series is hosted by me, Rob Doubleday, and is produced by the fabulous Kate McNeil, with the excellent support of two PhD interns, Alice Millington and Anthony Lindley. You can learn more about CSAP's work by visiting us on Twitter at CSIPOL or visiting our website www.csap.cam.ac.uk. If you have any feedback about this episode or ideas for issues we could explore in future episodes, please email us at inquiries at csap.cam.ac.uk. Thanks for listening.